It is arguably the most romanticised of all professions. The spy, the spook, the cloak and dagger merchant, the stuff of high-octane action films and dark, noirish novels. But what do spies actually do all day? In this special episode of The Foreign Desk, we'll speak to people who have performed the role for real, for different intelligence services across different eras and in very different fields of operations, from Cold War Moscow to US-occupied Iraq to troubles plagued Northern Ireland. We'll find out how to recruit assets, disrupt communications, adopt false identities, and, if necessary, get out in a hurry. And we'll learn how and why spies become spies. What does it take to be a spy? Have the necessary qualities and skills changed? And how do you tell whether or not you've done any good? This is The Foreign Desk. I would go from the embassy home to my apartment. I would change into dark gray clothes and then drive around Moscow for two hours where I really did some checking for whether I had a surveillance team following me. I would then slip into the subway and ride several stops and change trains and then approach the site where I would put down a dead drop, a catch for my agent. You can put the most sophisticated disguise materials that we can create on a person. And if they can't wear it believably, if they're nervous, if they're hesitant, their demeanor will reveal them, not the disguise. On the other hand, you can take someone in a fairly desperate situation and give them the bare rudimentary elements of a disguise. And they will carry it off like they're on stage at the Grand Theater down in the middle of town. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. The popular current image of spies remains rooted in the Cold War, specifically its shadow conflict between the intelligence services of the Soviet Union and the West. But what was it like to participate? I'm joined, first of all, by Martha Peterson, a former Central Intelligence Agency operative who became the first female CIA agent assigned to Moscow during the Cold War. It's a journey she recounts in her book, The Widow's Spy. Martha... First of all, explain to us what first drew you to joining the CIA back in 1973. My husband, John, had been a paramilitary officer with the CIA after his time in Vietnam. And we went to Laos in 1971, where he was in charge of recruiting, training, and deploying Lao troops onto the Ho Chi Minh Trail to interdict the North Vietnamese Army, which was headed south to South Vietnam. And in that role, he was killed in a helicopter crash in October of 1972. I accompanied him on this tour, and I worked part-time for CIA, but just as a, a contractor. And then when he was killed, I came back to the States. We were 27. And friends encouraged me to apply to CIA, which I did. Going back to 1973, which is half a century ago now, how seriously was the idea of a a female operations officer taken by the CIA at the time? The 
office, of course, supported women, but the men I worked with, my peers, basically, were somewhat doubtful. And it was my time and my work that eventually convinced them that women could do the same work as men and in some ways better. And and you were assigned to Moscow, which I'm guessing is a posting at the time that there was a lot of competition for? Yes, there was. But it was a unique assignment because we had to pass many psychological tests and very difficult screening. The man who actually selected me for the position in Moscow was taking a risk with me since I was the first woman and a single woman, too, that was assigned to our CIA station in Moscow. Uh, That psychological screening slash training you allude to, what does it actually involve? How did they prepare to send a, a young single woman to Moscow at more or less the height of the Cold War? I think the screening was to see if we were emotionally stable and able to work on our own. The independent aspect of it was very important since all the other officers had a spouse, a wife, to be out on the street together. And it was somewhat of a support. So I think it was somewhat of a risk. uh, But I think they also knew I had been through some horrible moments in my life. And I came through rather balanced, or so I thought. Now, this, of course, is my recollection, Andrew, of 50 years ago. (laughs) But when you actually get to Moscow, what does your work involve? I mean, it it is obviously a a much mythologized role, the idea of being an undercover operative behind enemy lines. But when you are actually doing that job, you are working for the CIA in the Cold War Soviet Union. What do you do all day? Well, I had a day job that I had to do, and I can't describe it more than that, but it was a full-time job in the embassy. That's what I did full-time. I actually had three Soviet women or four Soviet women who worked in the next office and were were, uh, very friendly. And so what I had to do was live as if I were, you know, a regular office clerk. And then at lunchtime and in the after work in the evening, I would slip up to our station and do my preparation for my on the street work. Can you talk a bit about what that on the street work involves? Again, it's that It's one of those things that I think everybody has an idea of that they will have absorbed from uh, from fiction. But is the reality anything to do with that at all? In a way, it is, because what I had to do was first determine whether I had surveillance teams following me around Moscow. And after several months, I determined that they weren't following me and they really believed that I was just a young single woman assigned there, and they they did not feel threatened in any way. So I would go from the embassy home to my apartment. I would change into dark kind of um, gray clothes and then drive around Moscow for two hours where I really did some checking for whether I had a surveillance team following me. And with that confirmation in my mind, I would then park my car and slip into the subway 
and ride several stops and change trains. It's classic movie drama. And then approach the site where I would put down a dead drop, a cash for my agent. I mean, that that particular asset, a, a man called Alexander Ogorodnik, uh, what were you able to learn from a single source? And did you ever get any understanding of what real world effects that relationship had? Well, we got incredible information from uh, him. He was working within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Moscow, and he had access to all the communications from the Soviet ambassadors in every capital city around the world, including Washington, D.C. As you recall, this was a time when the SALT treaties were being discussed and worked on. So his access to the Soviet game plan through these documents that he photographed was invaluable during that time. The relationship ends in, in 1977 with, with his death by suicide after being arrested and, and your arrest as well by the KGB on the, the subject of, I guess, scenes from a movie drama. Were you surprised that your time in Moscow ended like that? Or is that, uh, I guess, something that someone doing that job factors in as an occupational hazard? We all factor that into going to Moscow and we're prepared to end our tours if that's what happens. But I must say, I was committed to this agent and I was horrified that something might have happened to him when I was arrested. But they knew where I was going to be and they picked me up and took me to Lubyanka prison. So it wasn't something that I hadn't played in my head some, but in reality, we all hoped that would never come. I mean, it clearly didn't put you off working for the CIA. You stayed there for, uh, well, another 25 years. You retired, I think I'm right in saying, in 2003. But when you look back over that long time you spent with the agency, do you feel like it did do or contributed to doing what the CIA is supposed to do, i.e. protecting American citizens and American interests? Are you able to quantify the good you might have done? You know, Andrew, over a career, you have ups and downs of jobs. But I know in my heart that what we were doing and what I was contributing had a, an important effect on our work as a whole. I knew that each moment that there was something there worthwhile, no matter how strange some of the jobs were. In the end, I worked for the Counterterrorism Center from 98 to 2003. And of course, that was with 9-11 right in the middle. So what we were doing at that time was highly critical. Martha, thank you. That was the former CIA agent Martha Peterson. Her book, The Widow Spy, is available now in paperback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our next guest is Willie Carlin, a former MI5 agent who was recruited in the 1970s to infiltrate Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. Willie spied on the group for 11 years, during which he worked alongside IRA commander Martin McGuinness in Derry. In 1985, his cover was blown, and Willie and his family were very hastily evacuated from Derry on Margaret Thatcher's jet. This interview was recorded in February 2023, a few days before Willie Carlin died, aged 76. 
I began by asking Willie whether joining the British Army back in 1965 was considered an unusual thing for a Catholic man from Derry. No, contrary. Uh, back then, in the mid-60s, I mean, there was no trouble. It was kind of the factory I worked in, the British Sound Recording Factory, made record players. It closed down, and we were all sort of on the door. So most young men of my age joined the army. My father had been in the army, and it was traditional sort of, you know, if you had nowhere to go, it would either be a priest or be a soldier. So I became a soldier. Obviously, by the time you, you leave the British Army, the situation in Derry has changed dramatically. It's it's easy enough to see why MI5 would approach you, I guess. But for you, what was the appeal of working with MI5 at that point? Well, at that time, I mean, I didn't know it was MI5. I just looked upon it as a challenge to work for these people who advised me that I would be protected at all times There'd be somebody behind me watching me. Of course, none of that was true. But, I mean, I went ahead and accepted it as a challenge. And how did you personally see what was becoming the Troubles at that early stage? Did you see it as a, a binary conflict between Catholic Republicans and the British state, or more complicated than that? Well, actually, it was more about the RUC. I mean, I was coming back one night, as we called it on the dairy side, back to the water side. There you see baton charged a crowd of young people along with soldiers. And I ducked into what was called Woolworths Department Store Burton's and just kind of hid in because I wasn't involved in the riot. But there you see got me and they handed me over to a soldier and they beat the hell out of me. So that was my first experience of the troubles. And I kind of thought to myself, well, this isn't right. I wasn't doing anything, you know. But but nevertheless, you, you later worked for the British Army's Force Research Unit. Did you see that as a way that you personally could either reduce or perhaps even avoid the conflict from escalating? Yeah, well, well I mean, after I left MI5, I had nothing to do with the troubles for a long time. And then uh, I was at home one day and a young girl came into my mother's house and she was crying. And she asked, you know, for a, a drink of water. And she asked me to leave her down the street. I left her down the street. She went to a house. She knocked the door. A gunman came around the corner and shot her in the head. And then he crashed through the vegetable door and shot her again. And uh, I made my mind up then that, you know, that, that was it. These, this was just, these people were murderers. So I phoned the army at Edmonton Barracks thinking I could go back to MI5. But in fact, I ended up with the Force Research Unit. And while you were working for the FIU, to what level were you able to rise within Sinn Féin's organisation? At the start, I mean, I, I was just a kind of a, like everybody else. But the area I lived in didn't have a common. That's a Sinn Féin term. So me and another guy called Eddie McGowan, we formed the common. And... Uh, Eventually, I was the person, because these guys were mostly IRA. They didn't like going to political meetings. So they said to me, look, you're into all this kind of thing. You go across to Cable Street to the Curricanter meetings. And, uh, you know, you, you take over our views and bring back their views. And that's where I met Mitchell McLaughlin and Martin McGinnis.
So what was your role for the FRU at that point? Was it as straightforward as relaying what you had learned about Sinn Féin and about people like Martin McGuinness? I mean, at the start, they weren't too sure because what they were interested in was the IRA. You know, I, I was more or less involved with Sinn Féin and it became clear to them that, you know, the politics of the north of Ireland was just as important. And I became a sort of a an outside chance that this might lead somewhere, especially, you know, when they discovered that Martin McGuinness was attending these political meetings. Did you make any attempt on your own initiative or, or were you instructed perhaps to try and influence Martin McGuinness's thinking in particular and steer him towards the idea of a, a political path? Yeah, well, I remember Martin said once that, uh, you know, if there was another way of stopping the troubles, you know, he would certainly be for it. And uh, I remember during the hunger strike in 81, 82, the assembly elections came along in 82, and I was asked to help get Martin elected. Now, at that time, the British government would have known to do with Martin McGuinness. They've seen him as a terrorist. But the Fru and some people now back on the scene from MI5 said to me, look, if you can help get Martin McGuinness elected to the Northern Dale Assembly, he'll be a legitimate assemblyman. And then we'll be able to talk to him. Whereas at the moment, we can't be seen talking to a terrorist. So I was the one, along with several others, that helped Martin get elected in 1982. I became his election agent and the rest is history. We should emphasise for the benefit of listeners who may not be that familiar with the Troubles that in doing all this, you were, of course, running an absolutely terrifying risk, as you must have known at all times. The IRA were infamously ruthless with people they even suspected of collaborating with the British military or the British state, never mind people who actually were. Have you ever figured out how close they came to catching you But just before you finally fled, Derry? Yeah, I was very close to being caught. There's a man called Steakknife. His name was Freddy's Capatici, and he came down to Derry to find out where was this leak, because McGuinness was asked about an ex-soldier who was in Sinn Féin that they were interested in. And McGuinness says, get lost, you know. There's a guy called Wally Kieran, but I trust him in my life. But down they came anyway, and just before they got Scapatici and his team, the Norton squad, they went to Cable Street, which was Shinhead headquarters. And when they went in there, somebody, and I don't know who it was, to this very day, tipped off the fruit that these people were on their way to my house. And I was extracted within hours. And is it right that you were not only extracted, but extracted on Margaret Thatcher's jet? That's correct. Uh, Douglas Heard was the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland at the time. And he was on a visit to the province. He was using the jet and he was about to fly back. And he was told to stay where he was, stay overnight, that they had a very important person to fly to London. So my wife and I and my children, we were put on the flight and sent off from Belfast to Northolt. In, in England. 
the whole period you were doing this, obviously, it's an absolutely extraordinary tale, but it was all undertaken at considerable cost to yourself, uh, disruption to your family. When you think back on it now, and especially, I guess, reflecting on the kind of uneasy peace that Northern Ireland has had for the last 25 years or so, do you feel like you contributed to that in any way? Do you think that what you did was ultimately a good thing, that it, that it saved lives? that it perhaps helped wind down the troubles? I do, actually, because when I look back now, I was the person that set Martin McGuinness along the political road and started to talk to the British government. So when I look back now, I think, well, that there, me getting Martin elected in 1982, he then went on to become Deputy First Minister. So, you know... I was one of the people that set him on that road. And I think, uh, like I said to somebody, you know, if they ever tear down the Bolton, marked the peace process, under the ground to be a brick with my name on it. <laughs> that was the late former MI5 agent, Willie Carlin. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and joining me now from Orlando for a look at the reality of 21st century espionage is Michelle Rigby-Assad, a former CIA intelligence officer who spent much of a decade working undercover in the Middle East, an experience she writes about in her book Breaking Cover, My Secret Life in the CIA and What It Taught Me About What's Worth Fighting For. Michelle, first of all, to your beginnings in the service, why did you want to join the CIA? Actually, I didn't necessarily want to join the CIA. It wasn't something that I even thought about doing. It's simply that I had applied to probably about 200 jobs when I was in graduate school at Georgetown University. I was working on my master's in Arab studies pre 9-11. And it just so happens that literally is the only recruiter that called me back was from the CIA. (laughs) So when I found myself getting into the agency, I was quite shocked and didn't quite know what to do with that. When you'd first joined the CIA, especially if it wasn't what you necessarily intended, how different was the induction and getting used to the job compared to what you might have expected? Well, once you get in the door, you have to spend an entire year getting tradecraft training. So learning the whole ins and outs of being an undercover intelligence officer. So, I mean, it's crazy because you're learning to do all these things that you have absolutely no idea if you can do them. And at any point during that training, you can get kicked out of the program and that's it. So it's extremely stressful and you're learning how to do things like conduct surveillance or learn if someone else is surveilling you. You learn how to carry out clandestine meetings. I mean, unless you've robbed a bank before, you really don't know whether you can do any of those things. Once you got through all that and ended up being deployed, are you able to talk about where you were actually sent? So my husband and I were both hired in and we did all of our deployments together. We had five deployments, but we're only allowed to specify Iraq. So Baghdad as being one of them. So we were in Baghdad 2006 to 2007 during what I believe was really the worst part of the war, which was quite interesting. And if you can only talk about that location as where you were actually deployed, how much can you tell us now about what kind of work you were doing? Actually, quite a bit. The agency allowed me to share quite a few stories. So my book, Breaking Cover, is, had to be, of course, reviewed by the agency. And so everything I speak about publicly has to be 
okayed by the CIA. But really what my husband and I were doing was counterterrorism work. So you're always trying to find out who is carrying out terrorist attacks, who's ordering them, where they're holed up every night. So you're trying to basically keep coalition forces safe and Iraqi forces safe. But in that particular period, which was, as you have alluded to, an extraordinarily fluid one, to put it mildly, in Iraq's recent history, how difficult was just the keeping on top of who was doing what to whom, which groups were being formed, which ones disbanded, who was in whose pocket, etc.? Oh, it was incredibly difficult. And I love that you asked this question because we would always say it would depend on which way the wind was blowing, whether someone was in Organization A or Organization B. So everyone was following resources. Of course, in a war zone, you have dwindling amounts of resources and you have a non-functioning economy. So a lot of people would join terror groups only because that helped them, you know, put food on the table. So there were dozens of insurgent groups, dozens of offshoots of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so it was incredibly difficult to figure out who was who, where they were, what they were doing, who they were aligned with, because it was constantly changing. What kind of picture, though, are you able to form and where are you getting your information from at a time like that? Having had some experience of myself of reporting from fairly lively conflict zones, just getting a sense of even who is in charge of the particular neighbourhood you're working in can be incredibly difficult. It is. Oh, my goodness. It is so difficult. And of course, there are a lot of different methodologies that intelligence agencies use to do that. The few that I can talk about, of course, is recruiting sources to somebody who's well-placed. And it's often a person who's in the group who's fed up with it, or they're trying to off the competition. There are many reasons why someone might agree to work with you as a source. I mean, it is very difficult to recruit those sources because they're risking their lives to work with the CIA. If anyone realizes what they've done, then that's it for them, right? So it is incredibly hard to recruit them, but if you can get them, then you have the insider information on who's involved, where they can be found, what they're planning. So you can stop the car bomb before it explodes. You can dig up the IED after it's been planted, you know, things of that nature. How wary is the agency and indeed individual agents, though, of, I guess, what you might think of as the moral hazard involved here? Because if you're working with somebody and presumably paying some of these people for their information, you are becoming a participant in this conflict. Yeah, that's a very strange thing. So what you are always doing is balancing. So you might get some insider information from your source about an attack that's been planned, and you have to ethically, morally, and legally share that information with the people who are the targets of the attack. Because if you collect it and you can't use it, then obviously that's a problem. But then, of course, you're putting your source in danger. So you're always trying to balance keeping your source alive with using the information in ways that saves other lives. It is a very difficult balance to strike. And I think you're also suggesting something else, which is really a huge hazard in dealing with terror sources, is what if they turn on you? What if they become a double agent? And what I found in the agency is that we weren't leery enough about dealing with these individuals who did often turn on us. Again, especially at the early stages of a deployment, or at least at the early stages of America's involvement in it, how much of your job just feels like scrambling to keep up? Because obviously this is not your home territory. However much you learn and whatever resources you bring to bear, you're never going to understand it as well as the people who live there, have grown up there, and for whom it is their home. 
That's absolutely correct. We were scrambling. We were barely staying above water and it felt like we were running after the terrorists. You know, they're just always one step ahead of us, especially as sectarian issues hit a fever pitch. You know, the violence was overwhelming in the entire country of Iraq. And of course, both the Americans, the Brits, everyone who was involved, we don't have the knowledge of Iraqi culture that we need. We don't have enough Arab specialists to put into these war zones and handle these people properly. So I think that was one of the hardest things is that fundamentally, we just didn't understand the culture of the people and the history of the people that we were dealing with. You personally had the advantage of speaking the language, which is a huge deal anywhere in the world. But was being a woman any kind of advantage or disadvantage? Because you're dealing with people for whom an amount of misogyny is part of their ideology. Yeah, that's correct. So in fact, it was incredibly difficult. I found it an enormous challenge because in their terror ideology, a woman shouldn't leave the house without a male escort and without her face covered. So in one sense, I and my female colleagues were like these crazy unicorns to them. Who are you? And how could you know anything about my country? And how could you even think to be involved in counterterrorism operations? Like that's so far beyond the capabilities of a woman. So I found it absolutely necessary to showcase my intelligence very quickly in my meetings with these guys. Otherwise, I couldn't establish my bona fides and get to a point where they were willing to work with me. But if you're smart enough and you know enough about the culture, you can do that. And if you can then flip the equation, then it's to your advantage because you're different, because you are a unicorn, because they've never dealt with anyone like you. But you have to have a certain level of cultural understanding to make that flip occur. We do still talk about people who did what you do as undercover operatives, but practically speaking, are, are you really undercover? Doesn't everybody you're dealing with know or at least suspect who you actually are? And another excellent question. So I know people think, oh, this deep, deep undercover thing. But in most of the places I served, if you look like me and you were running around those parts of the world, everyone thought you were CIA whether you were or not. And so it's almost like you're walking around with kind of a big target on your chest. So then you have to learn how to operate under those very strange conditions. It's very much a challenge. But when you think back on that time, and I, I realise that answering this question is probably a bit like trying to put a fence around a cloud, but are you able to persuade yourself that you ultimately contributed positively, that what you did in Iraq, both individually and as an organisation at that time, did any good? Yeah, I know. So because of all the politics of that, you can look at that and say, wow, what a mess that we made of Iraq. Thankfully, personally, as an intelligence agency, we weren't supposed to be making policy or even suggesting policy. Our only job was to collect intelligence to stop attacks or to inform policy better. So because of that, and because every single day we could see firsthand the effects of what we were doing, you know, when you dug up the IED, when you disassembled the car bomb before it exploded, when you were able to identify the plans and intentions of, of a terror group before they kidnapped local Iraqi citizens, it wasn't hard to see that what we were doing was actually helping protect a lot and save a lot of lives. So that part is what gave you purpose and helped you to, <laughs> to keep going when it was actually quite difficult place to work because you felt like you were always drowning. There was so much violence, so much terror, so much difficulty. But if you could see the result of what you were doing, that is what helped you to keep going. 
Especially with a few years to reflect on it. And when you see the name of your former employer come up in the news now, as it still often does and always will do, do you think the CIA and maybe other Western intelligence agencies actually do a good enough job in explaining what they do and how they work? So, I mean, I know that you will know this, but it is axiomatic that people only ever notice intelligence agencies when they miss something, get something wrong, or make a big mess of something. Do they do a good enough job of explaining what's happening when things are actually working? No, we don't. <laughs> we do a terrible job, actually. Like you said, the nature of the job is that generally people don't know what you're doing until something blows up in your face and goes wrong. And then of course it goes really wrong. But there are so many times when we, I think we could do a much better job at our own PR and in pointing out the kinds of things we're dealing with. So like right now, the amount of Chinese intelligence operations in the United States and in Europe against us is so overwhelming. If a common person had any idea what the FBI, CIA, you know, MI5 are dealing with, they would be absolutely shocked. And wouldn't it be helpful for the rest of society to know to some extent what we're dealing with and what we're fighting? I think people would appreciate us more. <laughs> and I believe that we could do a better job of explaining the kinds of challenges that we're facing with, say, Russian intel, Chinese intel, North Korean intel. And, you know, I think the thing about intelligence is that we're always like 10 or 20 years behind the time. So for instance, after the Cold War, we had developed a good Cold War model, right? We didn't know what to do when that fell apart. And it took us a really long time to figure out how to do counterterrorism after 9-11, or actually even pre-9-11, when Al-Qaeda started attacking us in places like Yemen and Africa. We're now past that, and we're in a different area, and we're trying to catch up and figure out how we deal with the Chinese intelligence threat, the counterintelligence threat. And I think because we're, we don't have really good, solid leadership helping us reimagine how we're carrying out operations, we're, of course, not going to be able to tell other people what we're doing. Just finally, then, stressful though it all sounds like it was, and that's just what you're able to tell us, is there any part of it you miss? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. So, you know what I really miss? I really miss deconstructing a difficult case. So you're looking at something, you're like, is that source telling us the truth? Are they lying? Is that person a double agent? If they are, how might I prove that they are? How might I figure out if they're embellishing or fabricating information? So the intellectual challenge of unraveling that mystery is absolutely something that I miss. Michelle, thank you. That was the former CIA officer, Michelle Rigby-Assad. Her book, Breaking Cover, is available now in hardback. And finally on today's show, while modern espionage may have migrated substantially to the cyber realm, there is still occasion for slapping a false beard and a low-brimmed hat on someone and sending them undercover. And joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Jonna Mendez, former chief of disguise at the CIA and author of Spy Dust, a true story of espionage and romance. Jonna, first of all, we have to ask, of course, about the title Chief of Disguise, Central Intelligence agency. Is that what it said on your business card, if indeed the CIA issue business cards? It was the last thing it would have said on my business card. <laughs> my business card had all kinds of names and all kinds of jobs, but it never had my true name and my true job. 
I don't know how long or how straight the career trajectory to becoming chief of disguise at the CIA is, but how do you end up in that job? With some twists and some turns. I went into CIA as a contract wife secretary, and I was going to leave. I was going to go to work for the Smithsonian, where there, I'm sure there was something exciting going on. And my boss at CIA said, hold on, we are the Q to OTS of CIA. We are the Office of Technical Service, all the gadgets, everything they need from documents to disguise, to bugs, to concealment devices, stay. And we'll give you some training in photography because we know you are a keen student of photography. So they did that. And my professional career at the CIA began as a clandestine photo operations officer traveling around the world, teaching people how to use these unique cameras. We were using cameras in pins, cameras in Bic lighters, cameras in lipsticks, little tiny, tiny film cameras. So that went very well. I liked that job and I was good at that job. I can't get specific about countries, but I went to the subcontinent for a summer to fill in with some for someone who was coming home. And I discovered a culture out there that just fascinated me. So when I came back from that summer, I talked to my HR people and I said, I would like a job out there. They said, there is no photo job coming up. There is a disguise job coming up. And what I basically did in the middle of my career is I just took a hard right. And I said, so make me a disguise officer, you know, train me. And they did. Are there any limits to what you were able to accomplish? Can you basically disguise pretty much anybody as almost anything? No. You can take the person that walks into your lab and each one is a, is a new design challenge for you. Where are you going? How are you going to use this disguise? What is the climate? What is your day job? What do you need out of this material? And sometimes you discover they didn't need a disguise at all. But when they did, depending on the severity of the threat that they were looking at, we could stretch them pretty far. The extreme during my career was we were working with masks that were animated, that you could sit and talk like you and I are for a while, and the person you're talking to wouldn't know. Toward the end of my career, we really got that down good. And I, I went to the White House, and I briefed the President of the United States in the Oval Office, George H.W. Bush, who had been head of the CIA at one point. He was a well-loved director of CIA. I went in as the chief of disguise and I said, I'm here to tell you, you know, how much better we've gotten since we worked with you. I showed him some pictures of himself in disguise. And he said, well, where, where is it? He's looking around my chair like, do you have a bag of tricks? I said, I'm going to take it off. So I started what is now known as the Tom Cruise peel, but back then didn't have a name. And I started to take it off and he was like, no, whoa, stop. And he got up and came out from behind that desk and walked around and peered and looked. You know, he's looking like, where does the mask stop? What is this? Are those really her eyes? It really was my eyes. And then he sat back down. He said, okay, took it off. And we have some amazing photos, actually. There was a photographer in the Oval Office. But I didn't see the photos for 10 years. I think maybe I insulted her without meaning to. Because when I left the room... I was the first one out. She followed me out and she said, what did you just do? And I said, I think, I think you photographed it while I was in there, like, I don't know, 10 times. I think you got pictures. She said, yeah, but what was that? And I said, 
I can't tell you because it's classified. So she'd been in the room, taken the pictures, had the evidence. Of course, she couldn't see them until the film was developed. And I told her I couldn't talk about it because it was classified. So it took 10 years for them to get those pictures to me. Were there ever any incidences of it being underdone or perhaps overdone to the extent that somebody wearing a disguise in the field got caught? My husband, Tony Mendez, had this saying. I've forgotten exactly how he said it, but it went. You can put the most sophisticated disguise materials that we can create on a person, and if they can't wear it believably, if they're nervous, if they're hesitant, their demeanor will reveal them, not the disguise. On the other hand, you can take someone in a fairly desperate situation and give them the bare rudimentary elements of a disguise, and they will carry it off like they're on stage at the Grand Theater down in the middle of town, and they will, it will work. The limitations were more in the demeanor of the person wearing the disguise, really, than the disguise itself. When we're talking about the rudimentary disguises, is it really at the level of unnecessary spectacles, false moustaches, that kind of thing? We had a number of moustaches, not like you might see in some Halloween costume store. These Ours were, <laughs> it's called ventilating because you're working on a, a net background. Every hair is ventilated, the same with the wigs, if that's what we needed. Our disguise materials could be that good, but they didn't always have to be that good. They had to be what was necessary to get through that day. But the beauty of the masks was it was a whole disguise in one piece. You didn't have to put on a wig and adjust it and then put on the mustache and adjust it. It was just one thing that only fit you. You could do it in a parked car in the dark. You just pulled it on and it would register. I mean, you knew before you got out of the car, you didn't need a mirror. You knew it was right. Off you go. Came off just as quickly. Was it any harder for that reason, making disguises for women rather than men? Because obviously for the female operatives, slapping on a moustache and beard, not really an option necessarily. Well, the difference between the men and the women was interesting. The women always wanted to look better. They did. They thought, well, if, if you're going to do this, let's change the jewellery and the makeup and the hair and, you know, and let me pick them. And I'm going to look great when looking great wasn't usually at all on our minds. Men, the issues we have with men is they didn't want to put on a wig. I kind of don't blame them. I hate to wear wigs. But if you've got a United States Marine in your disguise chair, good luck doing anything with that guy. Because he'd say, thank you very much, ma'am. And he'd walk out and you knew he'd never open that dop kit that you gave. He'd never wear it. Is there still value to these techniques now? Because a few former intelligence operators I've spoken to for various reasons over the past few years have said quite frequently that they think the glory days of assumed identities are all over. Because especially if you are going to a country like China or a country like Russia, they're very well aware of who you are when they let you into the country and what your job actually is. And there's a certain amount of bluff and double bluff that goes along with that. So if everybody does basically understand, you know, who is spying on whom, is there still a value to the disguise, just basically dressing somebody up and sending them out into the field? We watched that technology coming and we knew it was we were going to have to somehow confront it. We've always found in the past that the technology that poses great problems to us is usually a technology that offers opportunity. If you can like 
get inside the technology. I'm sure that it has changed the way disguise is used. And you know, when you have a disguise, if you're doing international anything, you also have an identity that goes with that disguise. It's not just your face, it's what's in your pocket. All of that is being, has been challenged enormously. You have to know that I haven't been there for a long time. I don't know what they're doing. I know they're doing something because this kind of work doesn't cease just because you've got a speed bump in front of you with the technology, you have to find your way around it. All the years that I've been retired, we never talked about masks. It was unspoken that that was a technology they wanted to hang on to. And then all of a sudden, about five years ago, it was okay to talk about masks, which makes me think they're not using masks anymore because if they were, it would still be classified. It's not classified now. We talk about it in our books, which is why I'm talking to you about it. So either the masks themselves have changed or how they're being used has changed, but something is very different from what I'm describing. And I'm describing what we did basically back during the Cold War. Back then it was really useful. If you could make an animated mask, you could take it so much further. And we worked with Magic Community out in Hollywood, the builders of deceptions and illusions and creating some of our own. But we could make another one of you. We could make a duplicate mask of your face and find someone your approximate height, your approximate weight. And now you could have two of you, you and you two. And if surveillance is your problem and it was our biggest problem, you can hopelessly confuse them. And they never even know you've done it because then you unconfuse them at the end and you show up at the end of the day or the evening or the morning and they feel good because they were with you the whole time you were, you were never out of pocket, but you were totally out of pocket. We could change your gender. We could turn men into women. We could turn women into men. That was easier. We could change your ethnicity, change your skin color. We could blend into a crowd pretty much anywhere in the world. So that technology and the way we used it was interesting. It's not always coming through border controls. Those cameras that are on every street corner, like in China, that's a problem that I'm sure they're, they're working to surmount if they haven't already done it. John Mendez, thank you very much for joining us on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.